Hey everyone, it's Mike. On this bonus episode of Strange New Worlds, we're flipping things around. Instead of me interviewing someone else about the science that they do, I'm going to be interviewed about the science that I do and how I got to be where I am now. Whether you're new to the show or have been listening to Strange New Worlds for years, you might not know the full story of my academic journey. So today, I'm going to play an interview that Luke Tower did with me on his podcast, Atomic Interviews. Luke is a high school student who is passionate about science, engineering, and math. He's still trying to figure out what exactly it is that he wants to pursue, what specific questions spark his enthusiasm, as well as what steps he needs to take to turn that spark into a lifelong bonfire of imagination, creativity, and inquiry. To figure it all out, he's interviewing scientists and engineers and sharing those conversations on his podcast, Atomic Interviews. Along the way, he interviewed me. So please enjoy this episode where your Strange New Worlds host is put on the spot. And if you want to learn more about different scientists' career paths, subscribe to Atomic Interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Just one quick editorial note, at the time that Luke and I recorded this interview, I was still a researcher at the University of Washington. But by the time this episode drops on Strange New Worlds, I'll actually be in transition to my new postdoctoral appointment at Carnegie's Earth and Planets Laboratory. See episode 114 for more details on that move. And with that, Let's hit it. Hello. Welcome to the fifth episode of Atomic Interviews. My name is Luke Tower, and I am a high school student with a passion for engineering and physics. If you are new here, let me introduce you to the podcast. Here on Atomic Interviews, I talk to professionals who are using their knowledge of physics, math, and engineering to understand the world and make it a better place, and then I share those conversations with you. I hope it will inspire other students like me to pursue their passions for science and math. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Michael Wong. Michael studied at UC Berkeley, Caltech, and the University of Washington. He is a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist and is currently a postdoc at the University of Washington. He runs a Star Trek-themed podcast called Strange New Worlds, where he talks about the Star Trek universe and how it relates to science, technology, and culture. He also is helping write an astrobiology textbook for college students. I think he's a very interesting person, so I'm excited to share this conversation with you. Enjoy! So you are currently a planetary postdoc. For any listeners that don't know what that a postdoc or what planetary science entails, could you explain those terms and where you are in the process of your career and education? Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I'm really excited to be here. Um, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you, Luke. Um, so a postdoc, you know, if you imagine academia as a ladder that you want to climb where professor is like the top rung, uh, a postdoc is sort of like the rung between graduate school. So after you've gotten your PhD or you've gotten your doctorate, hence the name postdoc, and a professorship. So it's that, that space in between. Uh, and I study planetary science, which uh, sounds like what it is. It's the, the study of other planets. Um, not to be confused with plant science, though, which I have gotten in the past. You know, oh, what do you study? I study planetary science. Oh, that's awesome. I'm a vegetarian. What? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't study plants. Uh, I study planets and um, planets both within and without our solar system. So exoplanets are planets that orbit 
other stars other than our sun. And also, um, you know, planetary science encompasses things that aren't classically called planets. So the dwarf planets, Pluto, Ceres, etc., as well as asteroids and comets and things like that. Thank you. So as I was researching you, I also noticed that you often talked about how you consider yourself an astrobiologist. What's the difference between this and planetary science? And I guess, where does that fit? Yeah, absolutely. So astrobiology and planetary science are two different but overlapping things. So you can sort of imagine a Venn diagram where one of the circles is planetary science and the other circle is astrobiology, and they definitely have a lot of overlap. But uh, you can imagine things that are in planetary science that have nothing to do with astrobiology. So you could, for instance, study the storms on Saturn, which probably have nothing to do with life elsewhere in the universe. Conversely, you could study astrobiology without studying other planets. So you could be doing experiments, trying to recreate the origin of life in a laboratory. And that may not have anything to do with other worlds necessarily. Uh, so the overlap between astrobiology and planetary science is really about how planets can host and sustain life and how life is a planetary process. Um, so just a little bit more about astrobiology. NASA defines astrobiology as the study of life's origins, distribution, and fate in the universe. And I like to phrase astrobiology around key questions. So there are really three or maybe four key questions in astrobiology. And um, this is actually the way I structure my astrobiology class that I've taken, uh, that I've, that I've developed and teach. Uh, so the first question is planetary habitability. Was it, what does it mean to be habitable for life as we know it? And what is the distribution of habitable environments in the cosmos? The second big question is the origin of life itself. What does it mean for life to emerge? How did that happen? And could it be common on other worlds? And the third question is the search for biosignatures. How are we going to go out there and detect signs of extraterrestrial life? What are the techniques and methods that we'll use to do that? And as I've been pondering these three major questions in astrobiology, I've sort of decided that there is actually a fourth and more fundamental question to all of this, which is what is life in the first place? Like, what do we mean when we say we are searching for life or that we are trying to identify the origin of life or a place that life could live? In other words, a habitable environment. What does that even mean? What is our concept of life? How broad could it be or how narrow is it? I think that's the an open question. And I don't mean to offend any biologists in the audience, you know, because, you know, our biology friends have definitely eviscerated many, many questions uh, with regard to life as we know it on Earth. But I think in astrobiology, we need to be really humble in our assumptions and also free thinking and creative about the different forms of life that could be out there. Uh, and so the last thing I want to say about astrobiology uh, is to convey the message that there is really no wrong way to be an astrobiologist. You could be an astronomer looking for habitable planets. You could be a planetary scientist driving a rover on Mars. You could be a geologist wandering around Earth looking for the fossils of the earliest forms of life here, or a biologist who's trying to understand how microbes survive in the most extreme environments, a chemist who's trying to create the origins of life in the lab, or a physicist who's trying to understand those basic fundamental laws of life itself, or even get this, a psychologist who is trying to study octopi to understand alternative modes of intelligence on our very own planet and understand if there could be other modes of intelligence out there in the universe. And in the University of Washington Astrobiology Program, where I'm currently uh, housed, um, we have people from all of these different disciplines, including psychologists who, like I said, are studying uh, octopus intelligence to figure out, you know, because that's a that's a second genesis of intelligent life form on Earth. And it's a radically different, a different evolutionary path that created a different neurological architecture on our very own planet. So that's super cool to study, too. Um, so basically, astrobiology biology, to me, is a science that is governed by the questions that one asks, rather than the methods that one uses to do science. Like I said, you could be any of the above type of scientist, as long as you're using your science to ask an astrobiology related question, you're an astrobiologist. Hmm. So kind of looking out to try to figure out more about our history. 
Single. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, where did we come from is uh, one really uh, incredibly important question in astrobiology and really gets to the heart of like the origin of life itself. What were the steps necessary to lead to our very own existence? And could there be other instances of life out there as well? So you run a podcast that's called Strange New Worlds, which connects like science, technology and culture to the Star Trek universe. What led you to creating this podcast and how did you get into Star Trek? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, Luke, how much Star Trek are you familiar with? Um, when I was younger, I watched some with my dad, but it's been years. I'm more of a Star Wars guy. Hey, I don't blame you. Star Wars is awesome, too. I love them both. Um, I just have this amazing fascination with Star Trek because it's really about our own journey in the future to understand these types of questions. I mean, one of the most famous lines in Star Trek is to explore strange new worlds, seek out new life and new civilizations. That's basically what an astrobiologist does. Uh, and, and that's the inspiration for what I do as a scientist. Um, and so I got into Star Trek very much uh, similar to you, sitting down on the couch with my dad watching it. Um, and he passed that along to me. Uh, and I've just become one of the biggest Star Trek fans. I've, I've you know, watched everything. I, I even read the books and the, and some of the comics, uh, play the video games. You know, <laughs> I love it so much. And um, uh, recently, Star Trek has come into a new resurgence uh, with a, a, a bunch of new TV shows. And so in 2017, um, the, the first of these new series came out. It was called Star Trek Discovery. Um, and at the time, I was listening to a bunch of podcasts and everybody was analyzing the trailer for Star Trek Discovery from the aspect of like the characters and the ships and the costumes and the story arc. But nobody was talking about the incredible science that was being depicted in the trailer. So the trailer had this gorgeous depiction of uh, binary protoplanetary disks, basically binary a binary star system in formation. And I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. Why is nobody even mentioning this? Um, and and so I realized, actually, you know, if nobody's going to mention it, maybe I should. Maybe I should just start my own podcast and talk about the science that is being depicted in Star Trek. Because I know people who are studying protoplanetary disks and people are studying binary stars and planet formation and all these things for their PhD theses. I could interview them and we could tie this all back to Star Trek. So since then, uh, since 2017, um, you know, I've been running this podcast called Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. And we've had so many amazing experts come on board to talk about the science fact behind the science fiction, as well as people from the actual, you know, Star Trek universe, the Star Trek production. We've had actors and writers uh, and even the Star Trek science consultants themselves who hold PhDs uh, come on board Strange New Worlds and tell us about how they've developed the science behind the show. And um, throughout it all, I've found it just the most enjoyable experience because I'm really passionate about science communication. I feel that this podcast is a way to give back to the community because, you know, nobody out there is undeserving of the wonders of the universe. And I want to create accessible and free spaces for people to learn about science because honestly, you all fund my research, my 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 grants, uh, and the money that pays me comes from NASA, which is a federally funded agency. So the American taxpayer, you know, literally pays me. This is your tax dollars at work. <laughs> uh, so I want to give back to you all and um, and share what we've been learning and to talk about the science that we've been discovering through the lens of Star Trek. Just seems like the perfect way to do it because you can never stop me from talking about science or Star Trek. I just won't shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite cool that Star Trek hires like scientists to help develop the science because often I walk shows and like think that's not real. That couldn't actually happen. <laughs> so when I see shows like that, where they actually consult experts and make it realistic in that way, it always gives me a appreciation. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I won't say that the science in Star Trek is, you know, it's got some holes in it too. <laughs> but of the course. scientists are there to sort of massage that and 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 get the, you know, the story comes first all the time. So when I've talked mm -hmm. to the science consultants, they always say, you know, they have to work within the framework of the writers who want to tell this story about humans in space, um, and they try to make it as scientifically plausible as possible. Um, but of course. Um, the story comes first. Mm -hmm. So as I was researching you, I looked into some of your projects, like you did a research apprenticeship at Berkeley, where you did simulations with ionic, super ionic water, or at Carnegie Mellon, Summer Scholar, where you like did laser heated diamond cell experiments. Could you tell about me about some of those projects? And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What a blast from the past. Nobody has asked me about these particular projects for a long time. So I'll try to recap what I did way back in undergrad. Um, so first, uh, a, a small uh, correction. So that's the Carnegie Summer Scholar at the Carnegie Institution for Science mm. in Washington, DC, which is not the same as Carnegie Mellon, although everybody gets them confused. So I don't blame you at all, Luke. Um, but yeah, <laughs> they are separate institutions. Thanks for the um, clarification. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So uh, the diamond anvil cell experiments that I did at uh, the Carnegie Institute, what were those about? Well, you know, one of the most intriguing things about planetary science is what is going on in the interior of planets, because that's really where the action is, right? We live on the surface and we think it's great, but that's just a thin part of the, the entire planet. Most of the planet is in the interior, sequestered away from our sight and from our senses. And often because it's so densely packed in the, 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 the interiors of planets, uh, they've got very different material properties down there. So extreme temperatures and extreme pressures. And we want to know what's going on down there. We want to know what phase of matter is, uh, is, is going on down there so that we can better understand the inner workings of planets and how that could potentially influence planetary habitability here on the surface. Um, so one way to get at the types of materials that that exist in the deep interior of the earth is to try to squeeze materials and heat materials to those temperatures and pressures here on the surface. And one key way of doing that is to squeeze things between diamonds. And so we call it a diamond anvil cell uh, because you literally place some kind of material between the tips of two diamonds. Um, and as you know, pressure is force over area, right? So these diamonds are actually really, really, really small and their tips are you know, almost microscopic. And you place this little bit of whatever you want to study between these two diamonds and you just crank up the pressure. Uh, at the same time, diamonds are transparent. So you can shoot lasers through the diamonds to heat up that material to the extreme temperatures that you can find in the interior of the earth. So I did this summer project uh, with diamonds and squeezing different materials between them while I was at Carnegie in the summer of 2010. This was the very first research project that I ever, ever embarked on. And if it taught me one thing, it probably taught me that I shouldn't be an experimentalist because, I mean, uh, I totally freaked out when I lost a diamond in that lab. <laughs> oh. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, no, it was fun. It was a great research experience. Um, and, you know, it's just one of the many ways that you can approach planetary science is to try to recreate those things for yourself in the lab using diamonds and lasers. Super cool stuff. Um, the other project, which I did the summer afterwards, which is at UC Berkeley, uh, under the uh, um, uh, under the advisement of Professor Burkhard Militzer and Dr. Hugh Wilson, was to simulate superionic water. So this was actually very much in the same vein as the diamond anvil cell experiment. We're trying to understand the material properties of something that would exist deep within a planet. And this time, we weren't thinking about Earth, but we were thinking about Uranus and Neptune. So these are the so-called ice giants because they're mostly comprised of astrophysical ices, so things like H2O, methane, 
methane, ammonia, things like that. So water makes up a big bulk of what these planets are made of, but obviously in the interiors of these planets, it's not liquid water, it's not solid water, it's super ionic water. Uh, so maybe Luke, Luke, you can tell me what what is the difference between a solid and a liquid? Um, I guess how condensed they are in temperature. Yeah, how condensed they are. And in terms of the atoms themselves, what what, what would you say is the difference between a solid and a liquid? Um, liquids are more free-moving and interchangeable, while solids are rigid. Exactly. So superionic, what does that mean? Superionic is this weird phase where the water is part solid and part liquid. So as you know, water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen and liquid water, the water molecules are free moving everywhere and solid water, they are structured in a crystal lattice. In super ionic water, the oxygen atoms are structured in a crystal lattice and don't really move. Whereas the hydrogen atoms are free to move around as a liquid. So that's what super ionic means. It's a strange form of matter. Well, we think it's strange, so that's why we name it superionic. But actually, superionic water may be one of the most common phases of matter in the universe uh, for water because most water in the universe probably isn't liquid, uh, may not even be solid. It may be this superionic form that we call this strange name because it is strange to us, but is actually far more common. Uh, and, and so uh, the way we approach this uh, project, which is to figure out exactly what is that crystal structure of those oxygen atoms uh, is to simulate the atoms in a computer, uh, basically to solve the fundamental um, equations of force that govern the interactions between atoms uh, at the subatomic scale, uh, or not subatomic, uh, at the submolecular scale, <laughs> at the atomic scale. Uh, and, and so this involves you know, solving Schrodinger's equation over and over and over again. Uh, and the computer does this. And we found out what the thermodynamically favorable structure of those oxygen atoms should be. Hmm. That's <laughs> different. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Very, very different. Um, so you talked about using software. I would assume you're, with your work, you have to be pretty experienced and familiar with that. How important would you say that type of knowledge is for research? Yeah, absolutely. So software is pretty important for the line of research that I'm in. Uh, most of my research these days is not experiments, uh, but actually using computers to simulate the chemistry and the physics of other worlds. So learning how to code is definitely a key if you want to go into the area of research that I'm in right now. But I, I have good news for you, which is that I think that your generation of students will get a lot more coding experience than what I did when I went through the pipeline. So I only took one computer science course throughout my entire education. That is K through 12, undergrad, and grad school, just one. And I think that it's more common these days for people in the STEM field to take a couple of computer science courses, especially because a lot of people are taking the STEM route to go into computer science to work at uh, you know tech industry or things like that. Um, so I wouldn't worry too much. Uh, if you find yourself taking absolutely no courses that teach you computer science, then maybe you know look at your catalog and pick out a few. But I think those will naturally come for you. In terms of software, though, you know, software isn't just about you learning how to code to do your science. Uh, software is also helpful in sharing your science. And I like to say that science is not done until science is shared. So in order to share your science, you need to be an effective oral communicator, but you also need to be an effective designer for when you create figures that convey your scientific messages in your papers, or when you give presentations at conferences to create figures and slides that can effectively convey your findings. And in the day and age of a pandemic um, where we have virtual conferences, apparently you also need to be a videographer. <laughs> so learning software, uh, learning software doesn't just help 
with, um, with doing your science. It also helps with sharing your science. And I highly encourage any young scientist to pick up a few skills and tricks here and there uh, that would make you proficient in software that can help you convey your findings once you're done with the actual doing of the science. Hmm. Sounds like I've had, or I guess my generation has more coding opportunities. So mm -hmm. I've already had the chance to take some in high school, which I think that's will be amazing. Good. That's great. Uh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so you've also taught classes on both astrobiology and planetary science for middle schoolers and college students. What was your favorite part of teaching different classes and different ages? Yeah, that's a great question. I had a lot of fun thinking about this question. So yeah, when I was in grad school, I taught a class called Adventures in Planetary Science, and it was for the Institute for Educational Advancement in Pasadena, California, which offered um, science classes and also other types of classes that are generally not available to people of middle school age, you know, so like planetary science, nobody's going to teach a planetary science class in middle school. So they offer these like extracurricular after school activities and summer programs where kids can get exposed to some of these more niche topics. Um, and so I, I taught one version of this class, which was, you know, like, let's just tour the solar system and things like that. But one summer, the summer of 2015, uh, I was teaching this class as a summer class, and uh, I realized that the New Horizons spacecraft was going to make its epic flyby of Pluto that summer during my class. So I restructured all of the material in my class to be about Pluto and how you would send a spacecraft all the way to Pluto and how you would learn things about a celestial object that far away. And uh, I remember showing some of the raw images, like this, like, uh, you know, hot off the press data from Pluto that the New Horizons spacecraft found as it flew by. Uh, am I able to share a screen here? Is that possible? Because I'd love to show you a picture, Luke. But if that's not possible, it's okay. Yeah, that's possible. And I can also link it. Yeah, we'll link it. Um, and I'll also describe it. But I just want to be able to show you. How do I do that? Um, it should be bottom left on the um, bar. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I want to show you this. This picture, Luke. So just to describe it for our audience, this is an image of Pluto that is sort of a mosaic of a bunch of the images that we found. Are, are you are you able to see it? Actually, I'm just, I'm just yes, I am. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> you never know with technology these days. Um, and so this is what New Horizons saw when it flew by Pluto. And so for for the audience who cannot see this image, what we're looking at is basically the disk of Pluto, but it's varied terrain. It's different colors. It's a little bit of light brown at the top and then like pearly white below that. And in one corner, you see this dark red material. And across from that, you see Pluto's famous heart, which is a giant glacier made of nitrogen ice. It's absolutely stunning. There are smooth terrains. There are crevices. There are mountains. There are craters. There are sand dunes. There is this like bumpy, hummocky terrain. It's amazing how diverse this world is. And if I asked you to describe what you see, Luke, what would you say? How would you describe Pluto? Um, just it's a colorful mirage with varying textures. I just... love it. A colorful mirage. Yeah. This is, this is why I loved teaching this class, because the kids, the young minds who, you know, aren't spending their entire days thinking about this at a quantitative level, think about it from an artistic and a human level, and they come up with the best analogies. So when I asked my class, my middle school class, what they thought they saw when they looked at this image of Pluto, this hot off the press image of Pluto for the first time, one kid raised his hand and he said, Pluto looks like a marshmallow. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is the most brilliant description of Pluto ever. Because you know how it is when you go camping and you are trying to roast a marshmallow. You can definitely put the marshmallow way too close to the fire and get that dark, burnt, brownish red color that you see in the lower corner there. Or you could have the marshmallow way too far from the campfire and it just remains pearly white, like some of the places here on Pluto. Or you can roast it just right and get that 
awesome golden brown texture that you see in that other portion of Pluto. And that's actually not a bad description of what is going on. It turns out that the darker, redder regions of Pluto are those regions that essentially have gotten sunburnt. And the regions that are white and pristine are those that haven't been exposed to the sun for nearly as long. And the golden brown is that magical like in-between. Uh, and uh, it turns out that there are chemicals in Pluto's atmosphere that uh, are, interact with sunlight. So this is essentially the sunburning part or holding it close to the campfire. And when those particles interact with sunlight, they create these thick organic aerosols that then deposit themselves on Pluto's surface. And so the darker areas are essentially those areas that are sunburnt relative to the brighter ones. So that was like the most interesting part uh, to me. I thought that was just a great story of how, um, you know, teaching a, a, a class of young kids, they see the cosmos in a way that even teaches me something about the cosmos, uh, which I really loved. Now, uh, switching gears to the astrobiology class that I've taught at both Caltech and the University of Washington, this is a class at the university level. Uh, and one of the best things about this is that, uh, you know, I was able to impact my community here in a new way through teaching this class. So the UW Astrobiology program is mainly a graduate student program um, that offers very little in the way of opportunities for undergraduate or college level folks who are interested in astrobiology and who are also uh, science majors. So I offered the first astrobiology course geared towards science majors at the University of Washington. And it was just such a heartwarming experience to, to see the feedback from that course. People telling me like, you've made my dream come true. I've always wanted to learn astrobiology. I've just never had the chance to do that. And I think this is very, uh, you know, a, a common sentiment across a lot of college campuses where astrobiology is this burgeoning field that people are starting to hear more about and that they want to engage in because of the exciting questions that it asks, but they're just not yet able to because an astrobiology class doesn't exist for them yet. And so through my career, I want to help bring astrobiology education to as many people as possible. And being able to do that at the college level at the University of Washington was such a treat. I think it's really cool. You're so devoted to sharing your experience and understanding in science. I think that's really cool. Oh, thanks. So you went to Caltech for undergrad and the University of Washington for grad school. What other colleges did you apply for and what ultimately led you to chose those schools? Yeah. Um, so this is a great question. Um, and I just want to offer a, a small correction here. So I went to UC Berkeley um, for for undergrad, Caltech for grad school, and I'm at the University of Washington yeah. for my postdoc. So I'll answer all three of those stages. Um, <laughs> so for Berkeley, uh, for college, you know, I applied to a wide range of colleges. I grew up in California, so I applied to basically the, the UC system, which has, I don't know how many campuses at this point, um, but, you know, order of magnitude 10. And then a bunch of, you know, uh, private schools and liberal arts colleges and things like that. And I chose Berkeley because it was relatively close to home. Uh, I knew that was important to me. Uh, not too close to home. It wasn't like in my backyard, um, but uh, it it also, you know, offered a diverse range of experiences and it was just such a vibrant campus. You know, there's always something going on at Berkeley. It's just a buzz with excitement and energy and people doing things. And I really enjoyed that. Um, so I majored in planetary science at Berkeley, and when it came time to applying to grad school, I wanted to apply again to a planetary science program, um, and that limited my options because planetary science is still a rather niche field. Uh, not every institution offers planetary science, and I wound up choosing Caltech for two main reasons. One is that it has a close relationship with JPL, NASA's JPL, and actually Caltech uh, administrates JPL for NASA. So there's a really tight collaboration between folks on campus at Caltech and up the hill at the lab at JPL. Uh, and because a lot of the really exciting space missions at the time, including the Curiosity rover and the Juno mission to Jupiter, um, things like that, uh, were run out of JPL. Oh, the Cassini mission to, to Saturn as well. Um, 
you know, they were run out of JPL. So that, so I felt like, you know, where else, where else should I go? But the place where a lot of this, you know, uh, excitement is, 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 is happening, you know, the hub of space mission exploration. Uh, and so I, I, I went to Caltech and, you know, collaborated on an almost weekly basis with people at JPL as well during my PhD. And also when I visited Caltech, I also, um, you know, found a lot of people who I just really resonated with uh, in terms of the the culture there, the the friends that I made, uh, the people that I met during my visit really swayed me to choose Caltech. They seemed like the right kind of people for me. <laughs> I don't know if that makes too much sense, but I think when you get to the stage where you're choosing graduate schools, um, you'll understand what that means because you're choosing essentially between different lab cultures and the people that you meet at a certain institution just have a certain vibe uh, and, and and, and that's really important because you're spending five to six years of your life working really, really hard and seeing these people day after day after day. <laughs> and you need to make sure that they are good people and uh, people that you uh, feel supported by. And so I, I felt that at Caltech. And then going out of Caltech after I got my PhD uh, and choosing where I wanted to go, Secretly or not so secretly, I've always wanted to be an astrobiologist. And astrobiology is an even more niche field than planetary science. And one of the only places that offers an astrobiology program is the University of Washington. So I had my eye on the University of Washington for a long time at Caltech. Uh, and I was just so fortunate enough to be able to find a job here as a postdoc coming out of grad school. And so, uh, you know, big props to my mentor, Vicky Meadows, for giving me a chance out of grad school. It's quite cool. So I've heard about, I've seen some stuff about Caltech has a very unique housing system that's yeah. almost comparable to like the Harry Potter housing system. Mm -hmm. What house were you in and can you talk about the culture and experience? Yeah, so Caltech does have a very unique housing system. There are eight different houses. And now, just as of a couple of years ago, an option to not be in any of the houses, but that didn't really used to be an option before. Um, and so they each of the houses has its own kind of uh, flavor, its own kind of personality. Um, and they are inhabited by undergrads. So I wasn't an undergrad at Caltech, but I was sort of an honorary undergrad through all of the activities that I would do on campus. Um, Caltech is such a small place. It's like fewer than a thousand undergrads, just over a thousand grad students. So a lot of the extracurricular activities at Caltech, be it intramural sports or the yearbook or um, what have you, the... Uh, music, uh, theater, things like that, that are all contributed to by undergraduates, graduate students, even staff and professors <laughs> and JPL folks as well, which makes it a really awesome blend of people in the Caltech JPL community. And that's how I got to know a lot of Caltech undergraduates. And I do know a fair bit about the different house personalities, but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say Caltech has these really strange rules about how you need to like actually go through the whole rotation process of being introduced to the houses yourself firsthand in order to explore their culture. But I can probably say that the uh, usual suspects are there. You know, there's a jock house and, <laughs> and there's a house that's full of hippies and, you know, um, so you can use your imagination, but I think I, to avoid, you know, being hunted mm -hmm. down by the Caltech police, I won't, I won't say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the University of Washington and Caltech are very different places, but how is the culture different? And do you have a favorite memory from your time at both of those places? Yeah. Uh, what a great question. So Caltech, like I said, is this really small, research institution, honestly, uh, that sometimes I feel like is masquerading as a university. Um, people say that Caltech is um, like, like, what was it? Uh, it's like science camp on steroids or, you know, it's like science camp year round. It's a great place to hunker down and just do research because it is a very, I want to say almost like sterile environment. There are few distractions at Caltech, especially walking around the campus. It's often very quiet. Where are all the people? Well, they're in their labs. They're doing their research because they love it. Whereas the University of Washington is a big campus. There are tens of thousands of students here with a very vibrant 
college life. Um, and so if you're into that kind of thing, if you want a college, you know, a quote unquote normal uh, college experience full of football games and rallies and frat parties um, and things like that, you know, you're not going to find that at Caltech, but you're definitely going to find that at UW. Um, and so that's sort of the main difference. It's just the size of the institutions. They're both amazing at research and they're both really fun places and beautiful places to be as well. Um, and I guess one of my favorite uh, memories from UW would be winning the UW Physics Slam, which occurred in 2019, uh, 2018, 2019, uh, and I'm thankful for her for, uh, you know, uh, recommending me for this podcast. Um, so shout out to Bryn. But uh, the Physics Slam wasn't just fun because, you know, it was an opportunity to practice and deliver a science uh, talk for a public audience, which is always really thrilling. Uh, and it wasn't fun just because I won. It was fun because of the people that I met doing it. And one of the people that I met uh, was a young woman named Veronica Mirzewski, who came up to uh, the, the, the panel the, uh, at the very end of the Physics and introduced herself as somebody who has always wanted to be an astrobiologist, but just didn't know how. At the time, she had just finished undergrad, majoring in biochemistry, and was teaching uh, science for um, uh, like third graders, I think. I may not get the grade right, but it was you know science for uh, for for like K through twelve students. And she was really interested in becoming an astrobiologist. And after seeing my astrobiology talk at the Physics Slam, uh, asked me about what are the steps that she can take to do that. And I'm happy to say that you know we kept in touch. Uh, we've uh, you know talked about what it means to be an astrobiologist. We've read astrobiology papers together and discussed them. She's come to the virtual group meetings and uh, reading club discussions that uh, we've been having during the pandemic. And I'm just so proud to say that uh, now, what is it, two years later, she is about to start graduate school in astrobiology at the Arizona State University in, um, in Tempe, Arizona. And so just, you know, knowing that I had an impact on somebody through the UW Physics Slam and helping them along in their journey was one of my favorite memories of being at UW, definitely. <laughs> You got to win and help someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one of those is way better than the other. Let me tell you. Yeah. Winning, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> what did I get for winning? I got like a tote bag. And I mean, like props to Bryn for putting it together and actually having prizes. But the tote bag is like <laughs> nothing compared to knowing that Veronica is going to grad school and going to be a cool, amazing astrobiologist. <laughs> so... There's been the pandemic, which has kind of affected some things yeah. in many ways. How has it affected you personally, as well as your studies, research, and workplace? Yeah, great question. Um, so like I said, I do most of my work through the computer, using computer models to simulate the nature of planets in and outside of our solar system. And because of that, my work really hasn't been too affected by COVID in a direct way, unlike some of my laboratory scientists who like couldn't go into the lab for the better part of a year. Um, laboratory scientists, friends, I should say. <laughs> uh, and um, so COVID didn't hinder my progress in that way, but it did, you know, impact my life a lot. Uh, science is obviously not done in a vacuum. So it cannot be done just me sitting on a computer coding. I need to talk to people. And one of the things that I miss the most is just swiveling around in my chair in my office and asking my office mates questions or having the reverse happen to me. I feel like that in-person communication really facilitated extra scientific progress that cannot be gained in isolation um, and also ushered a life change. So during the pandemic, I was living alone in a very small apartment in Seattle. And I was just like, I'm fed up with this. I'm not seeing anybody. And I'm paying a whole bunch of rent to live right next to a campus that I am not going to anymore. So I moved back home with my parents for eight months. And that 
actually really improved my mental health and probably actually helped me branch out in uh, in, in certain ways. You know, I had some more free time to engage in science communication, um, you know, up to my podcasting rate while I was back at home and also engaged in these Skype a scientist things, which is a, a program that connects scientists with K through 12 science teachers. And I felt that the, these science teachers are under so much pressure during the pandemic um, to deliver material in a virtual manner over and over and over. Uh, this has got to suck for them, honestly. And I wanted to contribute to, to helping, you know, um, science education during the pandemic. So I signed up for a bunch of these Skype scientists and had some lovely conversations with people, you know, everywhere from homeschooled 11 year olds to like a group of 70 high schoolers. So um, that was a lot of fun too. So as I was looking at you, I saw that you're co-authoring an astrobiology textbook. What kind yes. like, I guess what ages are that targeted to and how's that going? It is targeted to you as you will be very soon. It is targeted towards college students um, to teach them about astrobiology um, from a rigorous scientific level. So it's geared towards people who are science majors who want to learn about astrobiology in college. And um, this is a textbook that is actually the second edition of a textbook that's already out there, a textbook written by Jonathan Lunin, who's a professor at Cornell University. Uh, the textbook is called Astrobiology, a Multidisciplinary Approach. And it came out in 2005. So a lot has happened since 2005. I mean, for one, we have explored a lot more of the outer solar system. So Titan and Enceladus, which are key astrobiological targets, were heavily explored through the Cassini mission. We have way more detailed origin of life models, and we have discovered thousands of exoplanets since 2005. So there's a lot of updating that needs to happen. And Jonathan asked me if I would contribute to this and co-author the second edition with him. And um, that's that's what's happening. You know, it's, uh, it's in progress right now. That's a pretty cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a high school senior and will be applying to college in a few months. Yep. Is there any advice you would give me in the pursuit of my education and career? You know, I would say you're doing a pretty good job <laughs> from what I know about you right now. Um, the advice that I'll leave you with is the advice that my mom gave me when she dropped me off at college and said goodbye. And I'll always remember these words. She said, Mike, stay humble. And I don't know why those words really resonated with me, but I carried them throughout all of college and grad school and being a postdoc, just remembering my mom grasping me by the shoulders and saying, stay humble. And what they mean to me is basically that you have the opportunity to learn from every single human being that you encounter in life. You know, there are human beings out there who you expect to learn from, your professors or your mentors or your scientific advisors. And then there's literally everyone else who still has tons of stuff to teach you. And as long as you are humble enough to recognize that this person, even if they call themselves your student, has a lot to teach you, um, that is just a marvelous way to go about life because I feel like you'll be open to so much more. So I'll leave you with that, to just always remain humble, even though you're obviously a very bright and talented person, but everybody out there has something to contribute to your life. And all, all it takes is you letting them in. Thank you. So this is the last question. So this interview is about me interviewing scientists and engineers like you who can inspire students like me. Who is someone that inspired you and you think I should interview potentially in this podcast? <laughs> so many people. How many do you want? <laughs> uh, I'll give you a couple. Um, so I'll preface things by saying that I am able to stay in science because of the great mentors that I've had. You know, these are the people who have looked out for me, who have opened doors for me and given me opportunities. And so those are the people who allow me to stay in science. But the further I get into academia, the more I realize that it's actually the mentees and the students of mine who absolutely inspire me to stay in science, who make me want 
to stay in science and pursue this route. And so the first person that I would like to recommend to you is somebody who is actually relatively close to your age and your area uh, and, and your your um, academic standing. Her name is Maddie Christensen, and I've had the pleasure of mentoring her for the past year when she was a senior in high school. She did a research project with me and just watching her grow, watching her discover new things week after week really actually helped me stay mentally strong throughout the entire pandemic. Uh, and I'm proud to say that she is about to start college at Caltech this coming fall. And I think it would be great to speak to her because honestly, when I applied to college, it was more than a decade ago. And a lot of my advice will be obsolete by now. And so talking to somebody who just went through this process would be really, really good, I think, um, because she'll have a lot more concrete advice. And you can talk to her about, uh, you know, doing that science with me, but then also what the process was like uh, applying to college and things like that. Uh, and the other person that I'll recommend right now is someone who I really, really looked up to as a scientist, um, and his name is Stuart Bartlett. He's a staff scientist at Caltech. We overlapped for a few years when I was a senior grad student there, and she and he was um, a postdoc. Uh, he's, uh, he's now a permanent staff scientist there, and Stuart really has revolutionized the way I see astrobiology. He's a physicist by training, so I know you're really interested in physics, um, so he can offer you a little bit more insight into how somebody with a specific physics background can interface with the pursuit of astrobiology. But also Stuart has a super unique path to getting where he is right now. Um, he sort of meandered. He grew up in the UK. He went to Switzerland for one degree, then went to Japan for another, and now he's in the United States. So he's really a man of the world, and he's integrated all of these interesting experiences into his unique view of life in the universe. And I think he's just full of ideas that only an academic wanderer could have. And I'm really looking forward to your conversation with Stuart, if you should have it one day. And also, who Stuart is going to recommend that you talk to after him? <laughs> because I feel like he has so many connections, not just here in the United States, but researchers all around the world. So um, Stuart Bartlett and Maddie Christensen, two amazing people that I hope you get to speak to on a future podcast. Yeah, they both sound great. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Luke. I look forward to continuing to follow Atomic Interviews and to just follow your academic career as it moves forward. Thank you. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Michael Wong. If you'd like to hear more interviews like this one, please subscribe. Until next time, Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Luke Tower for featuring me on Atomic Interviews and for letting me repost that episode here for all of you on Strange New Worlds. You can find and subscribe to Atomic Interviews wherever you get your podcasts. And... While you're at it, why not rate and review Strange New Worlds too? I'll be back next time with another fascinating story from the intersection of science and Star Trek. Until then, see you out there.